It's great to see everybody here this morning, be back uh, together after uh, the holidays, uh, let's see, Christmas Day, New Year's Day, and then Snow Day. <laughs> we had uh, two services, and so uh, this, this week, back to three, I've already preached one time, so I'm just getting warmed up. And as I was standing in the back, I was watching a lot of students come. You guys came back early. It made my day. I'm so excited that, uh, that some, some of you are back uh, this morning. In uh, 2014, uh, which are the latest numbers available, the average per capita income in the United States was almost $29,000. Average household income was about $54,000. Incidentally, North Carolina placed 34th uh, of the 50 states in the nation uh, with a per capita income just under $26,000. Connecticut, as usual, placed first with, a, uh, with an average at about 40000 uh, almost makes you want to move, except it is Connecticut. Uh, now, on a worldwide scale, almost every statistic I could find um, confirmed, uh, be it average per capita income, the gross domestic product, purchasing power, discretionary income, almost every measure of wealth has us, that is the United States, in the top 10 in the world. Qatar currently places first. S- seven of the top Ten richest people in the world are Americans, headed, of course, by Bill Gates. Number eight is Mark Zuckerberg. I'm talking Facebook. Eight richest guy in, like, the world. By the way, according to Forbes, there are over 1,800 billionaires in the world with a combined net worth of $6.5 trillion. That's a little discouraging to think that if they all turned their wealth over to the United States, we'd we'd still be in debt. (laughs) The the U.S. has almost, I mean, has the most uh, billionaires with 540. Second on the list is China with 251, meaning we we have over twice as many billionaires as number two in the world. Of course, I could show you some numbers comparing our income, our standard of living with the rest of the world. It is shocking even if you're on public assistance, you make more than 90% of the people in the world. I found statistic after mind-numbing statistic of our relative and comparative wealth in the U.S. Certainly, by almost any measure, we live in one of the greatest and richest nations of the world. But I would suggest that our wealth also poses some significant challenges for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless, of course, you buy in, pun intended, to the prosperity gospel. That so-called gospel says God wants you to be rich and prosperous. It is being taught in some of the largest churches in America by some of the most well-known Christian leaders in the country. It is a well-known heresy, but somehow seems to worm its way into the hearts of people. Why? Well, because people like having wealth and Jesus as their gods in that order, (laughs) conveniently forgetting that Jesus said, you can't serve God and money, conveniently forgetting the story of the rich young ruler. Last week, after services, uh, we talked about the rich young ruler. Michael Talley sent me an article from 
the Babylon Bee. If you are not familiar with the Babylon Bee, it is a website where people write religious satire. Satire. The article he sent was entitled, Rich Young Ruler Finds Home at Lakewood Church. It reads in part, a rich young ruler looking for salvation was proud to announce Thursday that he finally found a place to call home at Lakewood Church. Calling the revelation powerful and moving, the wealthy, powerful lover of money said he knew Lakewood Church was the place for him after his lifestyle was affirmed and praised by lead pastor and famous author Joel Osteen. This place just makes me feel so comfortable, the man told reporters. I came in and told Pastor Joel I was a good person and had kept all the commandments from my youth and asked him what I still lacked. And do you know what he said? He told me I didn't lack anything, that I was great just the way I am. Satire, but true. Turn your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10, continuing story of the average American, otherwise known as the rich young ruler. Message of this particular text, people who choose Jesus must give up everything if they are to be His followers. They must come to the end of themselves acknowledging that they have nothing to offer. Jesus is their only hope because if we come holding on to the things we think valuable, things we bring to the table, our own self-righteousness, our own attempts at keeping the law like this guy uh, did at, at being good, if we come feeling good about ourselves and our assets, Jesus says today salvation for that kind of person is impossible. Jesus wants everything we have if we choose to be His followers. And if if you are not willing to give it all up, He will send you away, just like He sent the rich young ruler away last week. This will be a particularly popular message. Look at the text with me. Mark chapter 10, verse 23 and following. The, The rich young ruler has just gone away saddened, actually the word is appalled, grieving because he had much. Verse 23, and Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed from being appalled to amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of Of God, how hard? Well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Then they were even more astonished, from appalled to amazed to, now they're astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said with people, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, no fathers, because there's only one father in the kingdom, and and children and farms, along with persecutions and, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You, you remember the context. And by now, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem to give, well, frankly, to give His all for us, to, to make it possible for us to enter the kingdom. You see, well, while Jesus had a fairly nice home with somewhat comfortable surroundings, He left heaven. 
Not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, he took on the form of a servant, and being found in the form of a servant, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He became poor for our sakes so that we might become rich. In other words, he, he gave it all away. He became a servant so we could become children. He became poor so we could become rich. He became guilty so we could become innocent. He became the son of man so that we could become children of God. And he, he died, you see, so that we could live. He set the ultimate example of, of giving it all up for his own kingdom. During this trip to Jerusalem, this rich young ruler came to Jesus asking, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We found last week this guy was an up-and-comer. I mean, he had it all together, at least on the outside. He was rich and young and, and religious, probably blonde hair, blue eyes like Jesus, everything you could want, but, but he knew something was missing. And, and so he comes up to Jesus asking, what is it, Jesus? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life, to have the assurance of life, spiritual life now and, and in the life to, to come? I seem to have it all, but what am I missing? It's his problem we saw last week. He just... He just wanted to throw Jesus in the mix. He wanted to add Jesus to his already wonderful life. He kept the law, so he thought. He just needed to, to know what he should do to complete, his, well, to complete his own journey to eternal life. So, what is it, Jesus? What do I need to do? Jesus understood this man knew nothing of his own sin and, and self-righteousness. He knew nothing, really, of the kingdom. He knew nothing of giving it all a way to find the greatest treasure of all and, and find Christ, follow Christ. And so at the end of the conversation, this rich, young, this rich young ruler went away appalled, grieving, for he owned much property. The story continues today. I break down the text like this. We're going to see the spiritual poverty of physical riches in verses 23, 27, then they see spiritual riches of physical poverty and the verses that follow. Now, I didn't actually, well, see, I, I didn't actually label the points that way because I knew some of you would immediately become irritated. And jumping to the unwarranted conclusion that there is only spiritual wealth in physical poverty and, and vice versa. And you wouldn't like that. And, and that's not necessarily true, but it is the point here. Wealth is a hindrance, you see, to spiritual life, but I didn't want to lose you, so we'll just go poverty of physical riches and so on. Let's start with that one. Of course, in these verses, Jesus is speaking of the rich young ruler, and as the man went away grieving, unwilling to meet the demands of being a follower of Jesus, unwilling to allow Jesus to be first in his life, Jesus, no doubt with grief in his voice, said how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's hard. It's, it's difficult for a rich man to go to heaven. That's why I began my sermon with all those stats about our relative wealth. Because I know that you'd be tempted to sit there and think, I'm glad I'm not rich. Oh, yes, you are. And Jesus says of us, it is extremely difficult for the wealthy to enter heaven. And, and I know, and immediately you respond, but, 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 but wait, this is the United States. 
I mean, certainly we've faced some degree of moral and religious decline, but we, come on, we, we've, we've been a Christian nation. That's why God has blessed us. That's why we're rich. And that is exactly the response that the disciples had that day. You, you see, this prosperity theology that even infiltrates the way that we think is not new. The, the reason the disciples are shocked is because it was thought that being rich was the result of God's favor. So the disciples are amazed. Come on, the prosperity rabbis have taught us that if anyone is blessed, it's because God loves him specially. Now you're, you're telling me this guy, this blessed guy, specially loved by God, might not even get into the kingdom? Really? So Jesus repeats himself. How hard is it? Well, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What does that mean? Lots of speculation about that through the years, mainly as people have tried to soften Jesus' words. <laughs> I mean, come on, it can't be a literal camel, literal needle. That would be impossible. Some have suggested Jesus didn't really mean a camel, right? He actually said cable. You see the word for, for cable or a rope in the Greek, like English, is close to the word camel. So it's easier to thread a needle with a cable than for a rich man to, to get to heaven, okay? Anybody here ever try to, I'm not talking to men, I already know the answer to the question. Anybody ever here try to thread a needle with a rope? You, you, you can't do it. The point would be the same. Besides, the problem with using the word cable is all three synoptic gospels say camel. So unless all three guys got it wrong, Jesus said camel. In fact, there was a famous Persian saying that spoke of impossible tasks. It, it was even quoted in the Talmud, and it spoke of an elephant going through the eye of a needle. You see, for the Persians, the biggest animal was an elephant. Here, Jesus simply took the largest animal in Palestine and said, try to squeeze that through the smallest hole. It's an impossible task. That's the, that's the point. We have the same kind of sayings, when pigs fly. Well, maybe it's not... Okay, if it's camel, maybe, trying again to soften Jesus' word, maybe it's not a literal eye of a needle, but a supposed gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the needle gate. How many of you have heard this explanation before? Of course you have. You're Americans. Supposedly, if you want to get a camel to go through the needle gate, you would have to take off its entire load, all of its bags, anything that it could carry, and make it go through on its knees. It makes for great preaching. If you want to come into the kingdom, you see, you must come on your knees and, and carrying nothing. There's only two problems with that particular interpretation. First, it's possible, you see, for the camel to get through the gate. And Jesus here is speaking of something impossible. Second problem, there's no such thing as a needle gate. It was made up, not mentioned anywhere, inside or outside of Scripture, made up around the 9th or 11th century. They can't even agree on that. Again, all trying to soften Jesus' word because everybody, listen, everybody wants to be okay with loving money in Jesus. So, so, so what did Jesus mean? Well, it's mighty difficult to get a huge animal through a tiny hole. How difficult? Well, it's impossible. That's the point. And the disciples got it. It is impossible for a rich man 
to get to heaven is what Jesus is saying. And that should cause anyone with any sense, every one of us Americans who live in wealth compared to the rest of the world, it should make every one of us quake, shudder. Why? Well, why can't a rich person get to heaven? What's the problem? Let me, let me go further. Is it possible that those pursuing Jesus in prosperity gospel churches and doing so to get rich might not get to heaven at all? I'm at least suggesting that prosperity gospel teachers are presenting a false gospel. They are heretics. Let me be very clear. I could name some. It always irritates people when I name some. Why can't, a, why can't a rich person get to heaven? You ought to be concerned about that. The answer, of course, is the problem of the rich young ruler or anyone else who considers what they have to be adequate to get them through life. The problem is... There is little dependence with rich people, no matter how you measure wealth. An awful lot of really rich people feel like they don't need anything, and the last thing that they will do is admit dependence. If I have a need, I'll just take care of it myself. An awful lot of really smart people who think that, uh, there are an awful lot of really smart people who think we're really stupid to believe this nonsense. They rely on their smarts to get them through life. You don't need a crutch to get them through Christianity. Is it ever all of the really smart people who are atheists are the ones that garner all the attention? They're not smart. No dependence there, no ind- just independence, self-dependence. Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There we read these rather strong words. For consider your calling, that is your salvation, brothers, sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And some are here going, not many. There are some. That's me. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world. Despise things that, are, that God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in your riches or your wisdom or your strength or your ability to do things or any other asset that you think that you can bring to the table. The reason there are so few rich people, strong people, smart people, noble people in the kingdom is they don't think they need Jesus. They're so connected to their assets, they would never let them go, and Jesus says it's impossible, impossible for them to be saved. Because you cannot come to the kingdom, into the kingdom with anything. Jesus must be your only hope. 
He's absolutely confused the disciples. Notice verse 26. When the disciples heard this, they were now astonished. Why? Why are they astonished? Did they, not, did they like rich people? No, they didn't like rich people. They're as arrogant then as they are now. Look around. This is commonly held belief that rich people were rich because they had the blessing of God. God liked them, so they pleased him, so he made them rich. Again, that's exactly like the health, wealth, prosperity theology taught in churches today. I guarantee you they don't teach the rich young ruler. Disciples thought the same thing that everyone else did. You're rich because God likes you. By the way, since you're rich, you have time to accomplish a couple of very important things for God. First is almsgiving. This is very interesting. Giving to poor people. That's a good thing. God likes that. But of course, they also had a law regarding um, almsgiving. You should give to the poor. God likes that. That's a good thing to do. And the more the better, but only up to one-fifth. Any more than one-fifth, God does not like that. So, rich people, you must keep four-fifths for yourselves. Give a fifth to the poor. God likes that. And not only that, second, the rich people had more time to study the Torah, the law, so they could keep it better. God likes that. Do you see this whole system was based on what they could do, what they brought to the table? Don't you like this, God? The rich had the ability to give more, to study more, to work more. So if, if the people God likes finds it impossible to be saved, who then can be saved? You ought to be asking that question. It was a legitimate question. Jesus answers it in verse 27. With people, this is impossible. Uh, well, it wasn't possible. The, 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 the salvation of a rich man by his riches or his smarts or by keeping the law or anything else that he thinks that he can do to earn his salvation. It's impossible for anyone who tries to come into the kingdom any other way than the Jesus way. It, it, it's, it's possible his way. With God, all things are possible. Anyone can be saved, even rich people. Anyone can obtain eternal life. Anyone can come into the kingdom if they come his way, dependent, humble, empty-handed, broken, mourning like children. Jesus, you're my only hope. I I, I want you to know something. This had not occurred to me until I was restudying this text this week. The The rich young ruler and the disciples basically asked the same question but from a different starting point. The the rich young ruler and the disciples' question was, how is a person saved? Same question, really, but the rich young ruler was convinced it was something he could do to be saved, and there was absolutely nothing he could do. The disciples asked the same question, but from a different starting point. Who possibly in themselves can do any, doing anything, can, can be saved? And Jesus, notice, gives the same answer, nobody He gave the same answer to the disciples he gave to the rich young ruler. You can't do it. It's not possible with man. But with God, all things are possible. I want to be be perfectly clear this morning. Salvation is by grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And, And proof of God's blessing in your life is not material wealth and prosperity. It is spiritual wealth and prosperity brought by Jesus. You try to get God to accept you any other way, not possible. But you come empty and broken, all things are possible with God. He can even save you rich people.
brings us to our second point, riches of poverty, verses 28 and following. As usual, when Peter and the other disciples hear Jesus teaching, they have only one question. <laughs> What's in it for us? Jesus could have pegged them again right there, but very graciously and gently he answers their question, which becomes a source of encouragement to rich young rulers, actually, and to fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners like, well, like, like us, who have given it all up because we love Jesus more than anything. What's in it for us? Jesus' answer, yes, Peter, you have. Yes, you have disciples. Yes, you have anyone and everyone in the history of the church who has ever chosen to be a follower of Christ. You have given it all up. And as a result, this is, this is what awaits you. Notice first the all-inclusive list of what must be given up for Christ. He lists seven things which speak of the completeness of our surrender. The first and last are possessions, houses and, and farms, or, or could be lands there. The middle five are relationships, people. Now, Jesus is not suggesting all these things must be given up, but as followers of Christ, we must be willing to give them up. In fact, we don't trust in them. We don't pursue them. They must, must, much must be sacrificed. Please note, Peter says we've given up everything, but he apparently still had a house. It was Jesus' base of operations up in Galilee and Capernaum. He apparently still had a boat or somebody did. They, they traveled all, all over in the thing. Later, Peter apparently had a wife. Rich women followed Jesus and the disciples and apparently funded their ministry. Joseph of Arimathea, he's wealthy. But in all of those examples, there was a stewardship of God's possessions in the work of the kingdom. They used the house for a base of operation. They used the boat to spread the gospel. The women funded the work. Joseph buried the Savior. And further... If you breathe a sigh of relief in hearing that there are exceptions, then you should pay careful attention to what Jesus says today. Truly, I say to you, again, identifying this as one of his more important statements, there is no one who has left house where you live in safety and security, no one who has left family to include siblings and parents and children, or farms, that is your livelihood, family, possessions, livelihood. If you are willing to leave that where you live, who you live with, and how you live, then you will receive a hundred times as much in the present age. And, and again, he gives this list. How, but here's my question. How do we receive a hundredfold? Sounds prosperity to me. Very simply, we gain the church family. Hundreds of family members. In the church family, the true church family, there is familial love and care. We actually get to care for each other. Does that feel like a win for you? <laughs> it should. Our, 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 remember I suggested that, that our wealth poses a problem for the church of Jesus Christ? We don't need each other, we think. I can take care of it myself. Well, besides all that, you get eternal life. <laughs> Salvation, you get the kingdom. We've heard this before. True disciples of Jesus are willing to walk away from every possession and every relationship that would hinder or come in the way of our relationship with Christ. And so we are willing to give them up. And when we do, we receive God's blessing, which far outweigh any loss. And 
You know, and oh, by the way, there's one other thing. You, you get, get along with spiritual blessings of God found in the church. You also get persecutions as well. Golly, are you kidding me? You're going to talk about persecution again? No, I'm not. Jesus is. He throws it in the list. And while prosperity gospel people tell you you get wealth and prosperity with the gospel, Jesus in this text says the opposite. You must be willing to trade in your material wealth, and, and in return you get spiritual, spiritual wealth, laying up treasures in heaven, and you get persecution too. That's a great trade, isn't it? It is, because you get salvation too. You get eternal life. Jesus closes with this proverb. The many who are first will be last, and the last first, meaning very simply the first in this life by earthly human standards and measurements. Remember the list I gave you at the beginning? Those first in this life by earthly human standards and measurements, rich young rulers who value wealth more than anything will receive nothing. They'll be last. All they fought for, groveled for, sought as most important will perish with them. And the last in this life, also by earthly standards, human measurements, those who have nothing because they've given it all up for Christ will receive everything in this life and the life to come. Again, please notice Jesus shows up and switches the price tags of life. Those things we think valuable, he says, are, are worth nothing. Those things we think not valuable. That's what really matters. We must be willing to give it all up for Jesus. So let me ask you as we close, what does that look like? See, because I suspect it's very easy to sit here and say, well, I've got to be willing to give up my riches. So here you go, Jesus. It's all yours. I'll just take care of it for you. What does it mean to be willing to give it all up? For some of you, Jesus might literally be asking you to give it up this morning. You're holding on to things that are more valuable to you than anything, and Jesus says, I will be second to nothing. Give it up. Eternal life weighs in the balance. For some of you, I suspect it might be a heart change. A, a, a genuine willingness to put Jesus above everything you count dear, something that perhaps you've never really done before. H- here it is, Jesus, whatever it is, my job, my relationships, my bank accounts, my possessions, my education, my, my smarts, everything that I've held close, I, I, I let it go. It is yours. How do you want me to use it as a good steward in the kingdom? It is a recognition that everything that you are and have and will ever be is because of Jesus. And so you hold it lightly and you hold on to Jesus with everything that you've got. What's most important to you? If it is not Christ this morning, let it go. It's not worth it. It was Jim Elliott, a young missionary martyred by the Aka Indians of Ecuador who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.
Father, this is a particularly a challenging text for believers and unbelievers in the United States, where we live in relative abundance and quite self-actualized. We feel pretty doggone good about ourselves. And, and, and the truth is, wealth stands in the way of eternal life inasmuch as we depend on wealth or anything else to get us there. Father, this is, this is a tough text. I, I'm not sure by your spirit what you would say to us. Does it, does it mean we write a bigger check to put in the offering? Uh, does it mean that we um, forego uh, working at the, uh, at, at the bank or the or, 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 or this business to work in ministry? Does it, does it mean that I, instead of being a, a, a doctor here, I, I go to the mission field? Does it, I, I'm not sure. All, all I know is this means that we must be willing to give up everything to you. It's all yours anyway. And to trust Jesus and him alone for our salvation and for every moment, every breath we take. So Father, whatever it is that you need to do, I pray that you would do it right now in Christ's name. Amen.